Many of us have had some close calls. We talked about this a few months ago. You remember the story where I shot the kid between the eyes with the paintball gun? Other stories where we almost lost our son, Cade, in a hotel. He disappeared at 18 months old out of his pack and play into the hallway. And Mary and I woke up, and Cade was not in his pack and play. Now, how an 18-month-old kid gets those heavy hotel doors open, we still don't know, but he managed. And um, I rolled a f- uh, one of those side-by-sides with one of my other sons. You guys have stories like this that you go... I was facing sudden doom, great tribulation and difficulty, and the Lord rescued me. By the way, we all have these kind of earthly stories, but we also, all of us, all of us, have a true, significant, eternal life and death story. Close calls have a way of producing a huge sense of relief from what could have been to what is by God's grace. True? We, we, we experience these close calls and then relief, praise for what could have been and what is and is oftentimes followed by a resolve. I want to do better. I want to be more faithful. I'm not going to take advantage. I'm going to see things differently. True? That's what we find in this psalm we are studying today. David has just had a close call, and it has left him with a renewed sense of gratitude and appreciation and resolve. The psalm is introduced by providing the background to what we are about to read. So it starts off, some of your Bibles will say verse 0, which I didn't really notice that before. So the introduction is this, David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That's the introduction. As we jump in, let me pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us and pictured here in these two baptisms and our great rescue through Christ in whose life we are in. As I think about what getting ready to teach from this psalm, I remember this week how badly I needed these truths myself and how difficult it was to wrestle them into my heart and mind. So even as I lay out your word as food for our church, I realize my own hunger for it. We don't pretend that these things are easy to comprehend nor often to apply for us, Lord. But we do comprehend that you are good, that you are You started this work, you'll finish it, and we are in you, we belong to you, and you will see it to completion in us. So even as we prayed, help us to receive your words of eternal life. Where else would we go? And God, 
I pray that you would reveal your glory through the teaching of your word today. Amen. So the background for our story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is actually freeing, fleeing from one king and ends up in the hands of another. So he's fleeing Saul for his life, and he finds himself taking refuge in a Philistine city called Gath. Now why he picked the city, I do not know. Because if we, if we kind of go back in history, we'll find out that Gath is actually the same city where David, as a young boy, put three stones in his pocket and then used one to kill the Philistines' greatest warrior, Goliath. This is that city. And then later, while he's seeking his wife, her father says, well, all you'll need to do is go out and get me the foreskins of a 100 Philistines. So David goes out and gets 200 in the city of Gath and then brings their body parts back to the king to prove that he had succeeded. That's the rated G version, by the way, and I really tried to make it so. David is infamous in this city. His reputation is renowned, and hiding for this guy is near impossible. Everybody knows what he looks like. And he is now threatened between two kings seeking his death. This is real. Some men recognize David and they report him to the king. He's brought into his presence and in a desperate attempt to save his life and to free himself, he hatches this bizarre plan to feign insanity. So 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another, the servants? uh, uh, Did they not sing, sorry, to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. It's weird, right? He's pawing, clawing at doors. He's slobbering on himself and acting insane. So the king says, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? I think that's rather funny. There's not enough crazies, and you bring me another one? Get him out of here. I don't need this. You've brought this fellow to me as a madman in my presence. Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped the cave of Adullam. And what David recognizes is that this is a crazy plan that should not have worked. In all human reasoning, what the heck was I thinking? How did I get out of there? It was the Lord. David escapes, not just from Saul, but also from Achish. And he's safely tucked away in the cave of Adullam. He is overwhelmed with relief. Guys, we sterilize these stories, don't we? Can you imagine your life being literally threatened? 
I don't know, picture this. Two guys, either sides of your home, coming in with guns and ammo and the whole business. Your heart is literally pounding out of your chest. You're thinking, what's going to happen to me and my family? The fear, the apprehension. They come in your front door, doors ablazing, and you start slobbering on yourself and scratching on the windows. And they're like, we're out of here. Can you imagine the sense of relief? Here is David in this cave, and he is overwhelmed with relief and gratitude and resolve, and he spills his thoughts out on paper, and we have Psalm 34. C.H. Spurgeon rightly divided this psalm into two main parts, a hymn or a praise chorus, verses 1 through 10, and a sermon, verses 11 through 22. Originally, I was going to preach the first half, but this is so good, I couldn't cut it short. So we're doing the whole thing. Buckle up, okay? David begins this psalm with a hymn of praise to God, and he's recounting God's salvation power through his personal circumstances. God is great. Let me tell you my story. And then he makes an invitation for others to follow the Lord. And then he introduces this sermon where he recounts the certainty of a worthwhile life for those who follow the Lord and his ways. And so through David's expression of gratitude, he is strengthened in his own resolve to follow the Lord and to faithful living. And he's saying, join me. That's a flyover view of Psalm 34. The psalm is written in acrostic form. And what that means is, there's, now I'm drawing a blank, 22, John would know, 24 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And each half verse starts with a Hebrew letter from the alphabet. And scholars believe that this form of writing was used for two main reasons. By the way, we are in our new series called Grateful had leading up to Thanksgiving, and three of the four psalms we are going to be in are, are these psalms that are acrostic in nature, and it's meant to dis- display or communicate a fullness from A to Z. Something's done, and so completely done. So scholars believe that this form of writing was used for two main reasons, and the first is to help a primary illiterate culture to remember and to recall what God has done. And so they use this alliteration. You can work through the Hebrew alphabet. If you forget, you can go back to your letter and then try to remember everything that has been taught. And the second thing, like I'd mentioned, is to um, intended to communicate completeness. And in this case, in Psalm 34, God is fully faithful. God will save from all all trouble, all difficulties from A to Z, God will save you from. Not some, not a few, all. He will deliver you from trouble and fear from beginning to end. So let's jump in. For each section, I kind of make some observations. Now, we're kind of moving through it quickly. Now, we're not going to pull it completely apart. My hope is you'll get enough to really dive in this week in your own studies. But we're going to make some observations, pull out a life lesson, and then 
pull some applications together at the end. So David starts. Now remember, he's writing this while in a cave and his life has just been saved. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. By the way, I'm not trying to manipulate you with my tone. I'm reading it as we're supposed to hear it. This is the tone in which it is written and spoken. My soul makes boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is David's heart. This is the tone. He's writing in a cave. He had just been rescued from a two-pronged death sentence. And he starts his psalm with these words. David is relieved. He is in awe. He is grateful. And he's making an invitation. And he's resolved to be faithful. So here's our life lesson from just even this first beginning verse. Close calls have a way of producing gratitude, thanksgiving, and a resolve to faithfulness. Close calls have a way of producing gratitude, thanksgiving, and a resolve to faithfulness. I'm going to say it this way, and we're going to keep repeating this, but worship shapes living. You with me? This idea of I've been saved... This is amazing. This is wonderful. I've got this huge relief. I'm exalting in this salvation. And it changes. It shapes your life. I would argue it this way. You cannot genuinely praise and not be changed. Worship shapes living So David continues recounting his personal experience of God's salvation. Verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be shamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Hey church, this is not just some contemporary Christian CCM artist sitting in his cushy living room trying to conjure up lyrics to to get paid. This is a guy who has been desperately crying out for help and he received it from the Lord. And he is now sitting safely in a cave recounting his near-death encounter and the faithfulness of a God who saved him. Maybe, like me, you'll argue, well, God doesn't save from all our troubles. Little insight. This week I'm sitting at my desk in my office It sounds really big. It used to be a broom closet, right? Sitting at my desk, desperately crying out for the Lord to save me from something, primarily myself, and feeling like he's not answering me. And going, well, is this hyperbole? All fears? 
he keeps repeating it, the whole structure. I think this is our tendency. Does he really mean all our troubles? Because I've faced some difficulties, and I don't feel like the Lord has saved me from them. I'm in trouble right now, but God is not seemingly saving me from those troubles. You might even list some examples in your life as evidence. If you're a little bit more bold, you might even argue some other examples and pull in global suffering. Well, what about the starving Christians in Africa? God doesn't seem to be saving them from all their troubles. Or what about even the Jews in Syria? God doesn't seem to be saving them from all their troubles. Is it all? But we would be wrong if we said it's not all and it's hyperbole because it's not what David's saying. When he says all, he means all. And the structure even of his psalm enforces that he means all from A to Z. Here's how I think we get wrong thinking. And it's really necessary to pause here for a minute to explain a couple things because I think we tend to conjure up spiritual straw men and then we dismiss the passage's truth. You ever done that? You kind of, well, what about, you know, the starving? And then we can ignore the truth in the passage. Further complicating this matter is I think we bring modern Western mindset to an ancient Eastern text. And that throws us off a little bit. But here's what we need to remember. David is a Middle Eastern in an environment and a time period far closer than our African friends that are starving and our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Israel. David's situation is far closer to theirs than ours. And he still says all our troubles. The pervasiveness of trouble and difficulty and war that David faced is completely foreign to us. It is. True? Most of us. Yet he still proclaims God will save us from all of our troubles. But from the whole Old Testament and even the rest of the Psalms, what we know is that David is not arguing that God will remove those who trust in him from every negative situation. That's not, he's not arguing that, especially those that we create on our own with our own foolishness. So he's not saying that he will save us from every negative situation. Confirming this point, he will later state, many of the affli- are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. But here in verse 5, there's two key words that clue us into what he means when he says, saved from all of our troubles. And it's these two words, circle them if you're you're taking notes, radiant and faces. Radiant has to do with your heart taking thrill or exalting in something. Isaiah 60 verse 5, you can look that up. And faces has to deal with a whole person. So what David and the rest of the Bible is saying is that your person, your character, your inner man, your heart and your attitude, the part of you that will last 
forever. The part of you that matters will be able to rise above your circumstances. And in this way, you will experience rescue from all danger. So if by rescue you think God will take me out or remove my circumstantial difficulties and restore my comfort and convenience, then you will be disappointed and proclaim, see, the Bible isn't true. If by rescue you think that God is going to remove you from your circumstantial difficulties and restore your comfort and your convenience now, you will be disappointed often and declare, I don't think the Bible is true. But if by rescue you think I will be stronger and my character, my resolve, my attitude, my spirit, this part of me that lasts forever, the thrill of my heart will transcend my circumstances and God's word will always be true in my life. If you think that, then you will affirm God rescues me from all my troubles. See, if you you and I seek the things above, and set your mind on them, you will see that God always rescues you. If we get past this two-dimensional plane that we live in and we can get ourselves to God's dimension, we will see that God always rescues us. That if you are in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, every major issue in your life has already been solved. I understand some of us are in the middle of a trial and you may not have gotten to the gratitude and appreciation part yet. But if you seek the Lord and you see your troubles in light of you belonging to Him and you set your sights on things above, you will see, you will see that whatever your trial, God is doing good unto you. I can't tell you how bad I needed these words this week. If you are in a difficult season and God is not saving you in the ways you are praying, it's because he is saving you from something worse. If he is saying no to something now, it is only because he is saying something yes that is greater that you cannot see. Jesus himself says, My heavenly Father only gives good gifts. And if you think you're saying, I've got the best thing in my life going, and Lord, I'm asking you for it, because without it. And is he saying, if he's saying no, it's because he has a better yes for you. You will see, I will see, if we trust Him, you will be radiant. Your face will never be shamed. You will be saved from all your troubles. Jesus, who is the angel of the Lord in this passage, makes His camp around you. He will deliver you. This is, this is good news, church. Yes?
two examples. One ancient Bible, one modern. The Apostle Paul and Miss Lynn. Paul had some ailment, a trial, a physical malady or weakness. He wanted it gone. He prayed for the Lord to take it away, but the Lord did not. So you might say, see, the Lord didn't save Paul from all his troubles. Yet Paul resolved that what was going on in his spirit was far more important and valuable than when it was happening in his life circumstantially. In this way, Paul himself pens that his heart and his character and his attitude and his life was radiant and his face was never ashamed. His life rose above his circumstances. He was beheaded, by the way. His life rose above his circumstances and in this way he was saved from all, all his troubles. Yeah? Some of you should be saying, that's true. One right with us, Miss Lynn, has had great physical trouble and complicating medical issues for nearly 50 years. Many people in this condition are grumpy, they're complaining, they're whiny, and you avoid them. True? Yet many of you can't get enough of Miss Lynn's presence. She's encouraging, joyful, and life-sharing. True. We were at a reenactment. We take my mom. She's got her little green scooter. That's Miss Lynn. We take Miss Lynn. She's got her little green scooter. I call these guys. Luke bought a uh, Kentucky long rifle off of one of the guys. We're going to maybe go up and do some shooting with them. This guy, I kid you not, he is known. I got his phone number from somebody else last year. Oh, if you want used muskets, you go to this guy. His name is Wild Bill. That's his name. And he looks it. Big gray hair, huge beard. He lives in reenactment tents. Okay? Wild Bill. I call Wild Bill. Hey, hey, Wild Bill, we're having some trouble with this trigger. Hey, are you thinking about coming up to the shoot? I said, yeah, we're, we're thinking about trying to make it. And he goes, are you bringing your mom and her little scooter? I said, no, Bill, I'm coming with my cool gun. Isn't... <laughs> he wants to know if my mom's coming. What a neat lady. Miss Lynn and her family have prayed multiple times for her to be saved out of her physical troubles. If you, will, if you are earthly, you, will, you might be saying, see, the Lord isn't saving Miss Lynn from all of her troubles. Yet, like Paul, Miss Lynn has resolved, and many of us have heard her say, that what is going on in her spirit is far more important and valuable than what is happening circumstantially in her health. And in this way, Miss Lynn's heart, her character, her attitude are radiant, and her face is not shamed. Her life rises above her circumstances, and in this way, she is saved from all her troubles. Church, Vine and Branch, the Lord will save you from all your troubles. It's true. It's the word of the Lord. When the veil is torn back and we can see everything as it clearly is, 
We and Paul and Miss Lynn will say these circumstantial things, light and momentary troubles that are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We are saved from all our troubles. So here's the life lesson. If we want to live a grateful life, then regularly rehearse and proclaim how God is and has saved you from all your troubles. Worship shapes living. If you want to live a grateful life, then regularly rehearse God's salvation to you and proclaim how He is saving you from all your troubles. So now we can see after why rehearsing his personal experiences, David's enthusiasm is spilling over into an invitation. Psalm 38 our Psalm 34, now we're in verses 8 through 10, and again, I'm going to read it like it's written. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. How did David... How David genuinely gets to this enthusiastic praise is the same way that we get from our cushy living rooms to genuine heartfelt praise. It's the same way. The route is the same. How do we have a grateful life enthusiastically praising the Lord that, has, that is grateful in plenty and in want? and invites others with confidence to a God who rescues them from all their troubles. How do we get there? By recounting our near-death stories. And we all have one. I deserved wrath. But I've been justified by grace. So let me say it conversely. How will you be kept from a grateful life? Well, you won't get there with Hobby Lobby gratitude. Here's what I mean. I am so blessed. I'm so thankful for all my farmhouse decorations, close parking spaces, healthy friends, a box full of sharp clans and wet markers, right? Thankful for my neighbors, brothers, sisters, best friends, Mother being healed of shin splints just blesses my soul. And the great sale I got on the stroller sweater combo for my little dog. Church, there's nothing wrong with praying and being grateful for some of these small things, but hear me, hear me. A steady diet of this kind of side order gratitude is not healthy. If we live in second dimension world, and when we get to our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be that name, and we're thanking him for all these second dimension things, these two-dimensional things, it's not healthy. When we get to a place in our common times when we're praying together, church, it's not wrong we're, you know, for health difficulties and all this stuff, but when that's our regular diet together as a community, it's not healthy. 
so-and-so's bunions and heart problems and palpitations and ear things and that cancer. It's all important. But a, a steady diet of that is you will get sick. You're going to get weak. See, if we're going to get a Psalm 34 grateful life, then we must regularly dine on spiritual meat and potatoes. Or as Ian said, steak wrapped in bacon. Our gratitude must be genuinely anchored in real things. Things that last. That circumstances can't touch. Where Christ is seated. So here's the life lesson. If you want to live a life of gratefulness and resolve, your gratitude, your worship, must be anchored in heavenly realities. Things above that last forever. In other words, our spiritual diet must largely consist of eternal meat and potatoes. And by the way, don't forget the peas, the carrots, and the parsley. Right? That little side garnish. Have you ever tried that, by the way? It's no good. I've tried it. And so now we come to verse 11 through 22. This is the sermon section. And here David provides us with a way to live life that puts us in a way where we are regularly experiencing the salvation of the Lord. You following me? So the first verses were um, responsive. The Lord has saved you. Now he's going to present a sermon and he says, do you want to see the Lord keep saving you? And he's going to give him a sermon. He's going to tell him how to live a life where you're regularly experiencing the Lord saving you from all kinds of trouble. So Psalm 34 verse 11, come, O children, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he will see good? Who is that? That's a great question. Hey, hey, kiddos. Hey, little ones. Babies in the faith. Do you want to have a good life? Hey, mature ones. Hey, those who are facing trouble. Oh, children, listen to me. I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. Who wants good days? Who wants to see good in your life? Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. There it is. David's summary sermon on a life that will result in ongoing praise from the Lord, that you're regularly being rescued from the Lord. You ready for it? Here it is. Don't say stupid stuff, and don't do stupid stuff. That's what he says. Keep your tongue from evil, turn away from evil, do good. Don't say stupid things, and don't do stupid things. And your life is going to get immensely better. It's true. Guard yourself against saying stupid things and doing stupid things. In other words, don't say what God says not to say or in the manner he says not to say it. And don't do things that God says not to do and in the manner he says not to do it. 
So here's the lesson. Well, here's a little pre-lesson. Married couples. This is great counsel. You know, many of you know I did counseling for almost 20 years. I should have just did this. Hey, stop saying dumb things and stop doing dumb things. And your marriage is going to get profoundly better. Young men, young women who aren't yet married. You want to have a good life? Stop saying a bunch of dumb stuff and doing a bunch of dumb things. The pie chart moves that way, or the graph chart, whatever that's called. I went very good in algebra. (laughs) So here is the life lesson. If we want to live a grateful life, don't say stupid things and don't do stupid things. Rather, live the way that God says to live life. David's saying it's... He's saving you all the time. His word will continue to save you. Apply yourself to it. And so now he expounds on the promises and blessings of a life rightly lived. In other words, if you don't do and say stupid stuff and live according to God's word, you will continue to experience rescue from a futile life of hardship. And then when he saves you by his word, praise him for it. Remember where it comes from. Psalm 34, verses 15 through 22. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. There it is again. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many of the afflictions are the right many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. It's a picture of Christ right there in the middle. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Here, Romans 8, 1. As David closes this sermon-like portion at the end of his psalm, he reminds his listeners, not only has God saved you from all your troubles, he will save you from all your troubles. Trust in him. Live according from your Live according to his word, and you will save yourself huge piles of grief. When those who practice wickedness experience affliction, this is what the passage says, they are undone. They have no direction, no anchor, no mooring point, no rescuer. Here's my implication. Hey, child of God, if you're in trouble, don't act like you don't have a mooring point or a direction or a hope or a rescuer. Don't act like an unbeliever. Trust the Lord. I don't use those words lightly. I know it takes energy to get us there, but we do need to get ourselves there. But those who serve the Lord, who take refuge in Him, who live according to His truth, who are rescued by Christ, will not be condemned. Their faces are radiant. They will never experience shame. And again, right in this section, there's this prophecy of Christ. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. 
Here's the promise for those of us who are in Christ, like we saw in baptism. There is therefore now no condemnation for you. We are rescued from all our troubles. The the applications were really embedded throughout our teaching time. Let me just repeat them by way of reminder. First life lesson. Close calls have a way of producing gratitude and thanksgiving and resolve and faithfulness. Second one. If you want to live a grateful life, regularly rehearse and proclaim and invite others to see how good God has been to you, that he has and he is saving you from all your troubles. Worship shapes living. If you want to live a life of gratitude, gratefulness and resolve, worship must be anchored in heavenly realities. Spiritual diet must consist largely of the meat and potatoes of our spiritual life. And don't forget the peas and the carrots and the garnish. Don't do and don't say dumb things. Live according to the word of the Lord. And church, seeking, as Ian reminded us from Colossians, Going, finding it in our minds, and then setting our mind on what God has done for us is directly to, related to the way we live. Is that, we clear? Seeking and setting our minds changes the way we live. Let me say it negatively. If you're struggling and growing and changing in an area of your life or in many areas of your life and you just can't seem to reach the pedals and maybe you're caught up in some character things that you're not happy with, I can almost guarantee this. It's true in my own life. You are grumbling and complaining in your spirit about it. You are telling God more about what is Rather, what isn't, rather than praising him for what is. You have forgotten your near-death story. If you're struggling to apply the character of Christ, it is because we have forgotten our near-death story. It's not my opinion. It's the word of the Lord. When we forget our near-death story, we flounder in growth and change. Second Peter, Peter would say it this way. He just gets done listing some character traits. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And then he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted and blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We have forgotten our near-death story. So let's say it positively. If you want to grow and change... If you want these character traits, virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, if you want those applied to your life, then rehearse your near-death experience. Take joy in it. So much so that you can't help but telling others about it. If you want to grow and change, recall your close call near-death story. 
I deserved wrath. I've been justified by grace. I've been counted righteous. I'm rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord. I'm dead to sin, and I've been activated to righteousness. When you're not feeling it, when you're weighed down with the burdens of life, if you're struggling to grow and change, or you just want to, you desire to live a grateful life, then seek the truth of the gospel. Set your mind on it. Make it your anchor. Give thanks to God. Let your enthusiasm spill over to invitation. And then watch your life change. Worship shapes living. Father in heaven, we need these words of life. We need to be reminded of all the good things you have done for us. Thank you for David's words, that you have preserved them miraculously for us. Even as we sang, you've prepared them for us, and we desire to bend ourselves to them for your glory, for our joy, and the expansion of your kingdom. May these truths take deep root into our lives and produce fruit. And Jesus, may you be exalted because of it. So we ask these things and seek your help in your own name. Amen.